0: Episode number five, our monster for today is Process. The monster known as Process. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, as John is saying, everybody welcome back. Um, today uh, we talk with John Delman, um, mm-hmm. who's a director of product design at Twitter. Um, yeah. yep. And we get into Process. We, um, John understands Process. Um, he understands Uh, all the component parts that make it and he understands what doesn't work about process what does work about process and we talk about he kind of thinks about it in terms of a spectrum um, where on one side you have um, too many rules and then in the middle you kind of have uh, a little bit of rules um, and then on the other side no rules and he kind of talks about inhabiting um, the middle space between the two um John, do you want to tell us a little bit more about John?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So kind of like what Brian was saying, what's really important is that middle ground and looking at process as something that's a little bit more modular, that you're allowed to add things and take things depending on how the project is shaping up as you're moving along, because things will change and things will shift. Um, And so I think a lot of that experience comes from John's career, which you know, has always really been in this sort of design, web design, uh, branding sort of world. And he's moved around from, you know, a few agencies to where he's at now at Twitter. And that really comes through, I think, you know, with a lot of the things that he's, he's talking about and unpacking for us in terms of, you know, what this monster called process is, um, what it does and how we can start to really make sense of it and embrace it along the way. Um, and then we get into a few fun things towards the end of the episode. Ooh. If you want to talk about Oh, that yeah, probably. we
1: do. We uh, Because we're nerds here at Monst- Monsters of Design. <laughs> so, of course, we had to talk about Doctor Who um, with regard to monsters and monster hunters. Um, John has a great – his favorite monster is from Doctor Who. Um, mm-hmm. You can catch that towards the end of the episode. And then after that, we talk about um, sci-fi. It's a fun little chat about science fiction yes. in general, yes. Um, especially time travel stories. Um, yeah, and uh, we've, we 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 learned that time travel stories in process share some uh, mm-hmm. similar, a mm-hmm. few common denominators between them. Um, yeah. so I think John, with that, should we just like get the fuck into
0: it? What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's that time. Here we go. Let's go. That should be your shtick. You know,
2: like, like it's like a Mad Lib kind of thing. Like, you only <laughs> get half the conversation, and like, the, the end user, yeah. the the listener, has to make it up in themselves. And they're it's like, the I bet the they told a really funny joke there. <laughs> you know, but that was really cool. Oh, that was insightful.
0: You know, That's so, <laughs> so just
2: only have half the conversation. That would be <laughs> so brilliant. it's <laughs> so brilliant.
0: <laughs> it's kind of awesome that you're on this next because Emily was on last time. And uh, we had this conversation about, like, carnival clowns. (laughs) It was great, but we didn't hit record. (laughs) So funny.
1: (laughs) Yeah, did I... How did we get... We just immediately went in spelunking into some deranged... I don't even know. I, uh...
2: So you were talking about burnout, and somehow you got to carnival clowns, which is, which is actually where I start.
0: I mean, okay, that's okay wait actually
2: what burnout
1: okay. means to me. Okay, so let's... <laughs> I actually have a question for everybody. If you were to be in a circus, which role would you want to do? Like, what would you want to do oh, if question. you were part of a circus?
2: Lion Tamer.
1: <laughs> oh, Ooh, interesting. That's good. Lion now, Tamer
2: because... It's terrifying, but, like, gotta be thrilling, right? Like, you gotta have, like, a love for big, scary creatures, but see some humanity in them. Like, (laughs) that would be Mm -hmm. crazy. Like, I've never seen a lion, I've never touched a lion, but, like, as a gig, like what an easy gig to disconnect from, too. You know, you come home, and you're like, how was work? And you're like, I didn't get eaten. And then you just kind of like... go I it's like, you could totally disconnect. Like, me, I, like, leave work and, like... Slack is still pinging me, you know. The like lion, thinking of, yeah, the lion's <laughs> not gonna slack
1: you. Be like, hey man, and you
2: And forgot if they do, to, uh, <laughs> you know what? Quit your job. Quit your yeah. job at that point. The li- <laughs> sorry, baby, I gotta go. The lion's slacking me. He needs go. another
1: uh, piece of prime rib. I got to. Uh,
2: it's a thing. He needs gotta me gotta to go. stick my head
1: in his mouth real
2: yeah. quick. It's it's a. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. like to practice.
1: <laughs> there's there's a part of me. That would wants to say like, yeah, I'll be a trapeze artist, but Mm -hmm. I, you know, I would fall. I would go the way of like (laughs) Robin's parents. I would just like (laughs) fall to my death and then probably get taken in by a handsome billionaire.
2: And so <laughs> nice, I love nice. how you've done the like entire it. arc. Like, I could, there's got to be a cash <laughs> windfall in this for me somewhere. The, when yeah, they yeah. fell and the net broke as well, so they kind of had right. Is that how they died? Right? I know that they were like a whole family of trapeze yeah. artists, and they fell through maybe nefarious mm-hmm. reasons. We're not sure. Yeah, Tony. Totally, uh, right? Is that how this goes?
1: Tony Zuko uh, weakened the line um, because the, uh, the 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 basically the circus. The, sorry, now people were talking about Robin, um, Batman's <laughs> little sidekick. Not uh, a coworker. Yeah, uh, not, not, yeah not So you know, Robin. God, yes. You know, Robin. <laughs> yeah, he works in marketing. Uh, well, he used to be in a part of a circus. <laughs> well, he used to
2: work in marketing, and yeah. then this guy oh, came oh, by yeah. and a lot
1: of pay- face paint and
2: ruined that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so but it was tony Zuko because the, the circus wasn't paying protection money so the mob ordered tony Zuko to weaken the lines so when they okay. were doing it doing you know the big the flying graysons you but know they they're doing didn't their, do
2: a net they don't have a net was that their stick they didn't they, have a they, net
1: yeah because ah. say who needs <laughs> safety who needs that? Yeah, who needs? I
2: mean, one one would think that falling is kind of like. Well, I mean, there, there's obviously some grandiose metaphor here, but I mean, falling kind of part of the gig, right? I mean, like nobody goes up there that first time and doesn't fall. not. Right? Like it. that's yeah. not a natural. God. Yeah, nailed it. I was born on a line. <laughs> you know, like it's just a natural talent. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I have a kid, and and we. We we basically put him in the biggest crash seat possible in a car. Like and we're going nowhere, right? These people are up on trapeze. they're like, Natch Matt, whatever. The whole family can join. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, we have sporks just so we don't hurt ourselves while we're eating, you know? Like, like, <laughs> talk about a total different, you know, evaluation yes, of yes, risk. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, um, no wonder you want the line tamer. You you want to you want to yeah. break out of that spork life. I want
2: I got to break free, baby. That's that's me. That's if so anybody funny. knows me, that's that's how I roll.
0: <laughs> so, or maybe you tame the line with the spork. Maybe oh, that's maybe that, that's how the crossover would happen. This is like poking
2: um, it, like <laughs> just a little poke of the tug. That's terrible. That's a terrible. Bad name,
0: by the way, John. I think you should introduce John. You know. You're here because you used to be my boss, my manager, my creative director at Mindbody, and we only crossed paths for a few months, but I really enjoyed working with you during that time and it was awesome because I had, you know, worked at like some smaller places where I didn't really have like a creative director to work with. I did at The Wave Magazine a little bit, um but it was a little different because he was like a photographer creative director, which was good for me to kind of get some of that experience, but not like a product design creative director and so that was really cool and I enjoyed that. You, you, like, you were you know, really positive, but you pushed me you know, a lot too. And so um, that's you know, why, we, why we stayed in touch because I think we became friends through that too. Um, and then you went on from MindBody and you worked at a few agencies in, in the Bay Area. And then you ended up at Twitter. And I believe that's because Ueno, if I'm saying that correctly. I feel like a lot of people don't know how to pronounce uh, wayno. The agency. It's, wayno. Bueno. it's, That's uh, right. like, it's just bueno.
2: Yeah, it's like bueno without the B. And the joke is if you don't know how to say bueno, it's bueno with the B. So.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So I've been saying it wrong. for. <laughs> I would say bueno. <laughs>
2: yeah. You see the delayed yeah. laugh right there? That's the yeah. kind of humor. That's what you're <laughs> in for, folks.
1: So for me, really? I was it. doing it <laughs> Waymo, pronouncing it. It's com- spelled completely different, but Waymo. Yeah. But That's a good, instead yeah. of an M and it's an N, mm-hmm. Wayno. It works too.
0: Wayno. Wayno. That's how I. Got and so that. Wayno was acquired by Twitter. Is that correct? It's is that, correct? Is that the, yeah. If we okay. became
2: part of Twitter. I think is probably oh, yeah. the way people say it. Uh, acquired makes us feel like we like we had this massive product offering. Like we were not a. A product company that came into Twitter with like here's a product we do we were we're a design studio that did product did marketing um, did did branding as well and we are um, we we joined we all kind of joined at the same time so to speak um, as part of the design, design aspects of Twitter's gotcha. uh, design and research team so
0: yeah. yeah and so your your title essentially your job leading up to that and I don't I don't this is actually a question I have for you creative director and then you're yes. at Twitter now, and it's design director. And I actually, am really curious about that that conversation, because I, I know we have that in-house at our agency as well. It's that, like, are we creative directors? Are we design directors? Um, you know, it's creative because it's more brand-focused. It's design because it's more product-focused. I'm actually really curious, like, your perspective on that, especially since I um, think that's your title shifted a little bit.
2: So, um, titles don't matter, honestly. Yeah, totally. um,
0: <laughs> they really don't.
2: They really don't, because yeah. um, I'm... Di- <laughs> all of them are wrong by the way everybody yeah i mean i'm a director <laughs> i think the title i have is director product design director comma product design some people yeah. call that product design director right there should mm-hmm. tell you that titles they don't really matter it's more about your yeah. impact and sort of like what kind of work you do um before then i was at Wayno as a creative director. At the end, I I, guess I had the title of executive creative director. Nothing changed. I didn't like suddenly wear a suit or do anything else. <laughs> like I just sort of ascended. It was um, it was quite an honor to be honest. Like they even work at Wayno. Like it was a place that I was. Yeah. i was a fan of i'll admit it i was a fan of them orally. i was a fan of huge when i worked at huge mm. before i worked at huge like it's always been kind of cool to like work at a place that's kind of unlike your bucket list of it's oh orally. someday i'd love to work there uh, twitter i could say that too um mm-hmm. although i didn't apply to twitter we just sort of <laughs> came over in the boat um yeah my career has ebbed and flowed of like sort of like what i do for a living um Right now, I focus obviously on product design and not even on the consumer product design. I work on an internal tools team. So I work on a lot of the enterprise level product design that none of the world really sees. You see the benefits of the work we do, but you don't actually see the physical work we do. Um, We partner with the design systems team. We partner a lot with engineers, which is the kind of the world that I really love. I love working around engineers. I love the development side of the work. I think that's a, really part and parcel with the kind of creative work I do. I'm, I'm a big systems kind of thinker. Um, I kind of like that kind of work. Um, before then, at Wayno, it was very similar. I Well, I was in a very creative agency doing marketing and brand work. I worked on the product design side, and I worked with... Um, companies like Splunk and Google on uh, doing their product design work uh, for on enterprise work. It's a very non ueno esque kind of things. You don't typically think of Wayno doing that kind of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, but we did do that kind of work, and it was um, it was really cool to be around the super highly creative folk who would do like sizzle reels and videos and marketing work, and then obviously really deep dive product work, obviously work we did with um, Twitter and and other groups as Mm -hmm. well uh, on customer facing as well as enterprise. It was just a really cool mix of work, which is what Mm -hmm. I really loved about Wayno. Before that, I worked um, at Agency Land for a long time. I worked at Huge. I worked at a place called Beyond after Huge, and mostly they're very similar jobs. I worked uh, primarily almost 100% on Google. Um, Google was the count that I worked with, and we did Google Cloud. I mean, you name it, a ton of different Google stuff. So, I work mm-hmm. with their design systems teams. I work on their enterprise stuff. I worked on their uh, business to business, their education department. And there was a kind of a plethora of marketing work and product work as well. And obviously, the stuff yeah. that you talked about at MindBody was kind of a little both, right? Like I was a creative director on the product design side, but also had another team that was the marketing side. Uh, So um, one of the the joys of that job was bringing those two very disparate groups together. um, Totally. Which is uh, always a challenge in-house. So like, does the marketing take cues from the product or does the product take cues from the marketing or do they even talk to each other, right? And Mm -hmm. like, that was... Uh, a struggle at first, but I think as our team matured, we started to see a lot of traction in there. Um, yeah, it's it's still a struggle at most in-house places. Um, and before that, for good God, like twenty years, um, I was at. A, a variety of agencies doing a variety of work. I were I lived in San Luis Obispo, working at what what is now Razorfish, what was Rosetta before Level Studios and Web Associates. It's all the same place, by the way, that just kind of evolved, changed, got gobbled up yeah. by other agencies. <laughs> um, totally. And I worked on. A variety of projects. I was on an Apple team, which primarily only worked on Apple account. And we would come up to Cupertino and work on Marcom stuff. Um, I worked on a Samsung team and a, and a and a BlackBerry team because they were accounts in-house. And then I worked in the Video Motion Graphics Group uh, right, for the last, right. I think, two and a half years of my time there, maybe a little longer. Um, and that was just like a very uh, wide variety of projects. Um, I was the design part of the video motion graphics, but we had, you know, we had motion folk, we had 3d artists, producers, of course, you can't do that work without producers, um, content writers, um, just a whole sort of, uh, we had a, a guy who was a creative technologist, which was actually my first real exposure to creative technology. Now I, I can't run a group without creative technology. It's just a interesting it's just so interesting. What? Okay. I, what does
1: a creative technologist do? Is that what your question was? Going <laughs> no, I was I was going to ask you. I, I, that that <laughs> might derail us a little bit from the the process monster we're sort of tackling today. Um, but I was I was curious about that jump into incorporating those sort of creative technologies into your work. So does I it, yeah. I
2: feel like it's all kind of the same Bula base. It's all kind of the same soup. I think we all approach creativity from a different superpower, so to speak. Um, like my, my niche, the my, thing I love is, is, is tying things together, is, is, is obviously I express myself in a visual manner. Um, I, I have an understanding of type, type, and color, and shape, and layout, but also narrative, and how technologies can work within that. Um, and yeah. then other people are like really good on the really uh, technical aspects, right? Like a creative technologist is really good about prototyping or putting together innovative solutions. That actually is a good bridge gap from the visual, the visual only aspects into mm-hmm. the uh, development only aspects. There's a really good glue layer. in there that um honestly i think that's to me personally that's where the best work happens yeah because it's
1: this highly communicative and collaborative space so john i okay so you know in thinking about sort of this whole the process just process in general um and you know you're talking about this love of tying things together and then being among people who are prototyping and generating these creative solutions. Um, so, where I guess, how do I want to ask this? I guess in working through this, where does process what is, I'll start with this, what does process mean to you? Process is
2: just, it's a series of actions in order to get to a particular end, right? It's a step-by-step Way of, of thinking and working to get to a desired outcome. That's what its base is. It's pretty close to the definition of it. Process to me needs to remain that loose in this regard. So if you look at the spectrum of, of, of the cringe that people get when they hear process, <laughs> they either go, they go one of two camps. They go, Too much rules right stifling rules for rules sake totalitarian state, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of scenario (laughs) they think of that they think of um, anal retentive ways. Of doing <laughs> process for process sake right totally I, I established a rule and then I do it the bl- I call it the blind process of just mm. we're doing it we don't know why we're doing it we're just doing yeah. it. that's what that's a big cringe and specifically in the creative arts that is the fear factor of why mm-hmm. process right and 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 there's a subset of those people of, of, of identifying their fears onto stuff like design systems and bring guidelines and other th- and and build guides and all those sort of things right and they say oh no that stifles my creativity on the other side of the spectrum there is i will break any rule just to break rules right? right it's if they are actually closer to each other in their thoughts than they think they are they are doing a thing just to do a thing versus why to me, the happy middle and the and the value of process is in the understanding why the process, what does this process afford us? What does this Mm -hmm. allow us to do? Right? Like, Mm -hmm. if I do this process in a loose manner, what am I learning from it? And what what safety nets is it checking off Uh, my process as a creative is somewhat similar to a a scientific process if you if you break that it's not as strict but it starts with what would be considered research right it starts with like observation asking questions uh gathering information right even so working so i'm very Benefited from working with a research team, amazing research Mm -hmm, team, mm -hmm. right? And like in an org that values and respects research, which is if you haven't worked with research before, it's a gift. It's a gift. If you work in a place, of course, the gardener just walks by. (laughs) Um, Like never, ever during the week, but only now, right? Only when you want to record. Um, Yeah,
0: right. So. Hey, it's their Research. process. They got to do it at this time. They got to the
2: do Saturday. it. They got to do it. Right. <laughs> he doesn't even know why. Um, so, um, so gathering the information, tying that to strategy, right? Like understanding the why. And then we mm-hmm. get into, if you're in the scientific world, you would, you would go into the hypothesis scenario, right? Um, yeah. Forming hypothesis, um, setting that up. If you're in the creative field, you would call that, creating a creative brief, right, where we articulate the KPIs. How will we know we've done this right? Right? Like I have a theory. Oh, XYZ, I now know my research This, this I think this is what people are doing. Here's who I'm doing it for. And this is maybe how it loosely ties to business goals. Um, I do a KPI of like, how will I know when I've gone too far? Right? How will I know when scope creeps come in? How Mm -hmm. will I know when we've We've gotten a great idea, but that probably should be another project or a phased yeah. approach or something. So we want to set some guardrails. So well, here's a KPI, and then from there we go into testing. Testing then comes afterwards, and that's what everyone thinks of when they think of process, right? Like this is where you do the design, you do the prototype, you maybe do a wireframe, right? You you work through your low to high fidelity you know, low level of effort to high level of effort. That's the meat of of the creative world. Um, And then you get and then you eventually launch maybe do some user testing in house, maybe a small beta group, that kind of stuff. And then the last piece is just data. It's just evaluating that data, understanding Mm Did we hit our KPIs? Did this, you know, can you have you can have the best hypothesis? You can have the best data, the best research, the best strategy. And then the world's like, nah, we don't use that yeah. anymore. <laughs> and there's countless cases of that, right? Or maybe That's it was ugly. too soon. Uh, the Newton, yeah. I would argue, was too soon. Um, you know, and then it needed some time to, like, mature. And then we see stuff like the iPod, the iPhone come out of that kind of stuff, right? So then rinse, repeat. And then that's, that's basically my process. It's a very loose process. Um, my old boss used to say, oh, yes, process. Everyone has process. We all have to have process. It lets us know when we toss stuff out. Like, you've got to be very loose about process. Like, have yeah. process because it allows me to understand the problem. It allows mm-hmm. me a space to iterate, to design, to create, yeah. and then a space to test and learn. But if some of those things already exist, like research already exists, then I don't need that in my process. Or if I'm like adding on to another project that I already have loads of research for or something out in the wild, you know, like then I can adjust my process. So I, I keep it loose, but I, but I always stress to my team, understand why we're doing what we're doing. Don't just do a thing to do a thing. Like, cause me, that's once again, that other extreme.
0: It almost seems like Uh, And Brian, I know you had a question, but just one thought before that, you know, like taking that definition of like a series of steps to get to an outcome, it almost seems like a better way of explaining it is a series of outcomes to get to an outcome. And that's where the why comes in. Because if you know, like, well, rather Mm. than like, this is the thing I just have to do. It's more of like, here are the goals that we need to to make. And, And even from like a video production standpoint, right? Like the goal is to have an idea. And then the goal is to have a script. Yep. And then the goal is to have a storyboard. And then the, you know, and it's like, these are goals. That's the process. But what they really are are things. The goal is to make this great. And if you can continue to make those, hit those goals, the end goal is going to be fantastic. So I almost wonder if that's maybe a better way. Wait, are there, are there dogs and, and a leaf
1: blower? <laughs> There are. There is a leaf blower,
2: which causes my neighbor's dogs to go That's crazy. That's so funny. Which then causes my son to say, doggy, or some other thing. That's so, so Yes, funny. we have a nice cacophony. I love it. Uh,
0: I love it. It's our audience. It's,
2: it's, it's, it's our wonderful. Audience, yeah. It's professional at its finest. Yeah, it's uh, great. I think, John, your point, which I love, is it demonstrates to me the value of process of, like, I appreciate low level of effort to high level of effort as a structure because it allows us to have like I don't know what I'm going to do, right? So I want to go find research to understand what the problem is and who might I be lear- you know, doing this for. And if that changes, not a huge level of effort to do that, right? Then you do a very low level wireframe, even a sketch. It's like if it's wrong, I toss it, right? This is why I don't dive you don't dive into like the full build with standing up servers and fully refined design. Because the the level of effort and the cost to change things at that time as you're still learning is high, right? But I can say like after a sketch and you put it in front of people and they're like, that makes no sense, or we've already solved this, you're like no harm, no foul, right? And like yeah, you can move yeah. on from that, but that learning matters. But if I were to design out the whole thing and polish the heck out of it and build yeah. it even, and then ask that question, it has to be a yes because yeah. <laughs> if it isn't, yeah, it's so costly yeah. to change. So an incremental overtime, that's the storyboard before you shoot. Is first off, the storyboard allows you to understand what you're supposed to shoot, but also... Even if you were to shoot it, and you're like, I got an idea in my head, and you go shoot it, and then you're like, that's not working. Well, now you've invested time with staff and the countless, you know, things. It's like, it's really hard to pull that back. And that's why I always suggest to designers or anyone doing any project, start at low level of effort and, and build up to the thing. Like, if you're going to do a website, start by writing the content like physically writing it or typing it out, do that work first. Don't dive into the fun design stuff because it's really hard to unpack that and, and make it work later when you, you're not entirely sure what content you need to have, right? Or definitely don't dive right into the build because you don't even know what the design might look like and then the content. Like start with the small things and build up from there. And that's a process, right? That's like that's a... In- incremental learning process more than anything else. Mm-hmm.
1: So, mm-hmm. John, in in you know describing and breaking down um, your process, I'd be curious um, how you got here. So, if you know we r- rewind back in time twenty years ago, like how did you how did you land on this happy middle here? Because you know y- you mentioned blind process, too many rules. Then you mentioned um, on the other side of the spectrum, breaking all the rules, um, and I get the impression this comes, this wisdom comes from you know experience. Like, how did you, how did you get? You can to your call under- what it
2: is. It's failure. Yeah. it's failure.
1: How? It's a lot so, of failure, by the way. A so, lot. so and I own it. So what was? Yeah. I guess my question then is, what were some of your early failures in process? <laughs> That yeah, got you yeah. to this understanding. How what long is the this
0: podcast? Uh, okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is this a series? Like serial? Uh, uh, yes! <laughs> uh, part 8 of John's failures. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the dark years. The 90s. Um, so I, I guess I could unpack it that far. And I think it might help. Um, I did not know anything about this career. Coming into this career. I wasn't wasn't a bad student. I wasn't a disciplined student either, though. And thus, I was a kind of middle-of-the-road, middling kind of mm-hmm. student. Um, and that translated into a lack of kind of understanding of what this would be when I started this career. And I, started, I got very lucky. I think a lot of my career has been a, a combination of luck and fortune over time, like right time, right place. Um, some, you know, growing up and learning how to do things better, taking life more seriously, the normal evolution. But I've been mm-hmm. very fortunate and somewhat lucky that I have had opportunities that um, a generation before me did not have because the Internet didn't exist. And a generation after me has not been, it's been harder for because this field has been more mature and, and less forgiving. So, when I came in in 1997, it was very much the Wild West. Um, There was no wrong way to do a website. There was, because nobody knew what a website was. Uh, We were kind of making the rules as we went along. Some people branched. People like Jacob Nielsen started establishing rules. I felt that his rules were smart and made sense, but too strict. And then there was the other side of the spectrum of no rules and chaos. I didn't quite espouse to that because I didn't I didn't understand why we were doing it. Why was that
1: not art? Was there, and I felt was like there, there was an in-between. So yeah. before you landed on that in-between, was there one side of the spectrum or the other that you gravitated towards more?
2: I, in, I, I wanted to have more rules, but I wasn't disciplined early enough in my career to stick with them um and i i learn in my own way i don't think i learn uniquely than other people i just learn in my own way uh it's a multimodal way of learning i need some more time in the oven to cook um i mature slow um so i have a yearning to be highly organized and and highly disciplined but over my life it's taken longer and more discipline yeah, to yeah. get there um I am a much more articulate person than I was at a young at the beginning of my career. I'm less emotionally prone to jumping into the the sugar cereals of what I do. I, I, I'll eat my vegetables <laughs> now more kind of idea. So um, and I've learned and I've learned over time that I enjoy those things, not even I used to look at them as things I didn't want to do. And I would avoid them. And then I you get into that mature level of like, I don't want to do it, but I should do it. And now I've gotten to the point of, I actually do want to do those things because they're hard. I'm mm. now at a point mm-hmm. in my life where I am I seek the hard things to do because I, I am aware that I grow the most. And as you get yeah. older, those opportunities to grow and learn seem to be less Available and you have to mm, seek yeah. them out versus they come to you. When you're younger and early in your career and everything's new, yeah, learning opportunities are abundant. They're everywhere. Everything's a learning opportunity. As you get older and more established, it's very easy to fall into familiar patterns and stop learning. And I'm terrified of that. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I will get yeah. bored. And I feel like I'll be antiquated and left behind. And (laughs) it'll be my own damn fault. And I cannot live with that. So I seek to do things that scare me. And I don't quite know because it forces me to learn it because I'm not as proactive as I like to think I am. And I'll read a book and learn a thing. I just don't learn that way. I need to do and I almost need other people to expect me to do to 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 learn. And so I force myself into scenarios where I have to bring it because now other people expect me to. And that's good for me. I, that's how I learn. And so process allows me to make sense of a of a structured baby step way of learning, a baby step way mm-hmm. of solving problems. And that's why design still appeals to me because it's still learning and it's
1: still problem solving
2: yeah, and it's still challenging. Yeah.
1: So when you go back to those and John, feel free to hop in here um, one of my one of my things I'm thinking through um, other John John Delman, um, is <laughs> going back to those JD. baby steps, right JD um, going through those baby steps um, was there any baby steps in the design process? um that you gravitated to more than other babies
2: yes so i got there were certain things i got immediately and they make sense to my brain the modularity scalability object-oriented thinking makes sense to me right a lego kind of way of looking at the world that makes sense to me foundational kind of stuff what was took me longer Uh, To see value and also just to get to exposure is more the truth is the understanding of wireframes I was uh, when I was in school. I was bad at writing outlines before I would write I didn't quite understand that like I got the rough draft And I got the polish later, but I didn't understand the value of an outline And it wasn't until later in my career when wireframes became a little bit more uh, mature, and, and I was actually exposed to them when I worked at Realtor. It was actually my real first exposure to wireframes. Mm-hmm. I got it at that point. I was like, oh, it's the it's the design without the design. It's the structural blueprint aspect of this. Yeah. That made sense. That, that it clicked for me in that point. The research component came late to me as well. Like I had worked with researchers in bits and pieces, but it wasn't until I was Paired with um, an actual research team and understood what their job was, not just the output. Because like we give these big documents, which as a designer, and it's just me, I just wouldn't read. I'm not a, a deep, yeah. you know, science paper reader kind of. I don't read like that. I need a, I need a narrative, a story. Like I'm, I'm better at reading uh, fiction than I am at reading nonfiction. I'm just I'm more interested in that that sort of narrative. Um, and so when I talked with the research team, they exposed me to the why, the questions they were asking, the exploration of what they were trying to learn, not the output. It was more, to me, it was, it was fascinating of like, who we talked to a bunch of people. We wanted to know who was using this. And we wanted mm. to understand where their roadblocks were. It was like, Oh, I get it now. I get it. It's not I'm not the user. I'm not the end part of this. I'm reacting and solving it for someone else. And getting an idea of like how they formulate the questions versus just the output of said questions mm-hmm, was easier. Mm-hmm. I got it at that point. So yeah. it's been over time that I've understood that kind of scenario. So like so you would so someone who understands Modular thinking and object-oriented design systems spoke to me immediately, yeah. right? Like it just made sense to me of like, oh, of course we would break this down. Brad Frost's atomic design. It just it made perfect sense first time looking. I was like, of course. Of course they maybe couldn't remember all the the points along the process of the you know it went from Adam to because I couldn't remember all of it up front but that didn't matter like I, I, I was old enough at the time where I didn't have to show a thing of like I'm an expert and I know all the terms it was like I got the underlying concepts and I got how to articulate it and as I dove deeper. I started to expose more interesting parts of design systems that they weren't rules of the road anymore, that they were mm-hmm. a toolbox and it wasn't build guides. It was like we were creating a toolbox to then give to developers and designers and say, build whatever you want with it. We're going to make the tools, the foundational nuts and bolts and screwdrivers and that. We're not going to tell you how to build it, but... Why should you have to go build a screwdriver before you make anything? Like, we're not telling you how to make the table. We're just providing all the tools to do that thing most efficiently and then collaborate with each other. And I realized it was a toolbox, a collaboration tool, and then just a a ton of other things became a recruiting tool, a a product unto itself, and the world opened up to me in that way. Um, I I think some people don't quite turn that corner. They still see it as brand guidelines. They still see it as dogma, rules, laws. And I don't see it that way at all. I see it as like, you don't gripe when you turn on Figma of like, oh, someone made this tool I have to use. It's like, no, because Figma was built for you to go build something. Imagine if every time you designed something, (laughs) you had to go build Figma first. Yeah, yeah. Go invent fire before you get to heat your dinner. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So like a design system doesn't say you have to design it this way. It says, yeah. here's all the elements that you might need. And by the way, if it doesn't have all the elements you need, tell the team, because it's an evolution, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the point. But what we don't want is like, five different designers finding five different ways to do a button. That's not helping anybody, especially the designer.
0: Move on.
1: That was Lost season two. <laughs> With the seven
0: seven tone so
2: foot,
0: yeah. which I never learned about. I hate God. <laughs> no, this is this is um, awesome, John. I I think what what is really fascinating to me is, like, I knew you've been a design systems person because I think you're you're really good at sharing and sharing things that you're reading and seeing, you know, on LinkedIn and then also in the Slack channel that you've created for a lot of us to participate in. Um, and what's fascinating to me is this, being able to tie the concept of a better process to the concept of design systems and how that's modular. And I think, you know, I, I love, like, this is like the, the biggest thing I think I'm getting from what you're explaining. And it's so helpful because to me, I, I, like I said, I've condensed it down to almost like this monkey bar analogy of just like the next goal is grabbing the next bar. And then if you just focus on that, you'll get to the end of the monkey bars. And I use that a lot when we're talking about process and working through things, but that's linear. And I think what you're, you're talking about is much more fluid, but it's still structured. There's a structure to it within those elements, just like Brad Frost's Atomic Design, And and that's great because with product design, you and with I I think with any whatever you're designing, you might not totally know the why at the beginning. You might have a, you know, ninety-five percent idea, clear idea of what that solution is. But as you work through the process, that solution might change. Or there might be exterior factors that affect that. Like if you're building a site and then the market changes a little bit, like the pandemic happening, your solution is going to be different. And so if you have that system that is, sure, like a product design system, but if you look at that from a process perspective as well and you have these key things that will help you get there, then you can shuffle them or say we don't need this anymore and you can move on. So I, I love that. and And I'm curious... You know, with with all of that in mind, how how do you and we you kind of got to it a little bit, but this is the fun part where how is process a monster? Like, how do we really condense all of that down to what what is it? How is this a monster? And and how are these things allowing us to sort of work with that and tame it and and bring it back to something that is actually really effective? So
2: it's a monster because it's like most monsters it's it's um we don't quite it's misunderstood honestly Um, Frankenstein was a monster but he was misunderstood he wasn't the monster the creator of Frankenstein was the monster right and didn't do a good job of communicating this benefit This amazing scenario that happened and people what do what do people do when they don't understand a thing. I always I always say this to the team like why communication matters so paramount when people are set with a a, a series of scenarios that they don't understand they do not fill that hole with their hopes and dreams. They fill that <laughs> holes with their fears and nightmares. And once they fill that yes. hole, that becomes truth to them, whether that was truth or not. And so it's, it's paramount for design leadership, for designers, for all of us, honestly, to communicate succinctly and accurately. And most importantly, when we find new information, we s- circle back and we say, you know what, that thing I told you before... I learned more about this, and it was wrong. And we're going to change this narrative, and you have to do it immediately, especially as leadership.
0: I'm really curious your favorite monster, whether it's because it's terrifying oh. or because you're like, this thing is fucking cool. Or maybe it's both. And you, you, you gave us a little hint about it, it's but balls, I want to hear from honestly. you. So, yeah, so
1: John, yeah. tell us, John, tell us your favorite monster. <laughs> I thought it was an excellent, excellent. It's, been, it's oh, yeah. Weeping
2: Angels from Doctor And Don where are they from?
1: From Doctor Who, got it. Doctor Who. I yep. think they
2: started with the episode "Blink," which I think mm-hmm. that's what it's called, or "Don't Blink," yep. or one. But it's um, <laughs> probably one of the best sci-fi episodes I've seen, And just the way it linearly goes back and forth, and it ties itself into a nice, neat bow. Um, mm-hmm. They are terrifying because they they combine all the things that scare people: fear of the dark fear of things jumping out at you what's going on when I don't see it and they're everywhere right there are statues everywhere and so I think they're in they're, there's a lore to them there's um mm-hmm. at least yep. in that episode there is a a not a, a they kill you outright there's a just a time travel they send they they suck your essence and send you back into time so there's kind of like uh, kind of want to get touched by an angel, but kind of don't kind of vibe. That's <laughs> yeah. interesting. Um, it's a fascinating character and it's very um, like statues are terrifying unto themselves, like most of them. But to see the innocent ones
1: turned horrific because they change shape. So, and yeah, so how do they, what do they look yeah. like? How do they I think yeah. like how they move through the world is really interesting talk yes. explain how they move. So what is, it's like a biological
2: thing that they cannot move uh, when you look at them. It is some sort of strange sci-fi timey-wimey thing (laughs) that, and I think that's actually where he came up with the term, right? That timey-wimey is like in that whole episode. Um, (laughs) They cannot move when you look at them, right? And so this, they can't, but they move infinitely fast, right? When... You don't look at them, and then if they touch you, they suck out your life force, and they do that by stealing your time basically. And they transport you back to an X amount of time. That is a that is kind of like the all above. You know, monster. That's not the I'm going to kill you, or I'm the 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 evil dead. Which, by the way, I love all those things. This (laughs) is so much more nerdy and so much more (laughs) inherent danger, and that's why it resonated with me so well. And this episode, once again, is so well written and so well
1: structured in that regard that it draws you in. What is their relationship with time? Do you think? Do they? Do they like? Are they like fourth dimensional? where they can just move through time at will and then come into our three-dimensional space to like No, I think they live in an in the linear way that we live in, mm. but they they sustain
2: themselves on our time energy, our life force energy. And so mm-hmm. they have a way to suck our life force by opening up some way to to, to transport you back in time and then steal the whatever that would be kinetic life force energy yeah. that you would have generated i mean i'm totally right. bullshitting none of that is. but it, i love it i, I love i love pseudoscience <laughs> awesome. I,
1: best, I do this yeah. shit with star trek i'm like okay so let's just talk about a warp field really quick you know <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't really yeah. fucking know but yeah um, i mean so i know i know how the a four drive second- works yeah you know so oh, yeah,
2: of course i'm gonna make sense way. in theory a lot of these things do make sense in mm, somewhat of a quasi yeah. physics you know quantum physics m- theoretical way. physics yeah, yeah that's why exactly. it's um, to, to answer your secondary question of like who would be the greatest monster hunter i would still argue dr who yeah. would be the greatest yeah, monster yeah. hunter because not only does he a Solve that but like a plethora of monsters right. over a series of time. Um I think just as far as the stats go, that guy's got, that guy and Gal have to be up there in the in the yeah. in the, the, the yes. high millions so, one fuck. Uh, Doctor
1: totally. Who I'm a big dude, I'm a big sci-fi nerd. In my one blind spot is Doctor Who. <laughs> Coincidentally, I have seen the Weeping Angels episode. So, I, I've seen a little nice. bit because I like Torchwood. So, I saw, I think, the first season of Doctor Who with Chris Eccleston. And,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, anyways, the Weeping Angels episode was in it, so I'm familiar. Um, but you're just making me really want to, like... I, I'm in a Farscape uh, viewing oh, right no. now.
0: Nice. Ugh, oh,
1: no. the, the horny puppet show. That is one. <laughs> so, anyways, but I'm like, I'm like, okay, I think what's next... Doctor Who's I think a if you're contender. gonna get
2: into Doctor Who, um, everybody has their gateway doctor. We'll call Who's it. Who's
1: your okay? gateway doctor?
2: It was David Tennant, and it was mm. um, it was David Tennant because there's a few one-off episodes that sucked me in. There was like a library mm. episode. That, there was a good bunch of two-parters that I enjoyed, um, and then. I, I, I thought it was a really nice transition to Matt Smith, Doctor Who, a, specifically an episode that Neil Gaiman wrote. <gasps> that is oh, just I had no
1: idea he wrote
0: that.
2: What I like so much about, it's, I think it's called Ooh. The Doctor's Wife. Um,
0: mm.
2: What I like so much about the Neil Gaiman episode is a, a number of things. I'm a big Douglas Adams fan. Mm. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide, Dirk Gently. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, mm-hmm. I love that guy. And, and Douglas Adams wrote on Doctor Who way back in uh, Doctor was Alive, way back. Um, And Neil Gaiman seemed to have captured a bit of that in this Doctor's Wife. And what I love most about that episode is you can, in real time, see the Doctor's mind working. You can see him working out sometimes four separate plot points at different intervals, non-linearly. It's amazing he will be looking yeah. at a thing but commenting on a thing as he's solving another thing that you're all tracking
1: it goes and back you, to what you said like communicating you watch these ideas. It lots of times yep. yeah so blink is a good episode because <laughs> you can watch it four yeah. five six times and find
2: new things and be like i got it oh that's so clever how did they write did they write that in reverse yep. did they write wow. that in this way and the doctor's wife is written in that way no surprise neil gaiman is a a brilliant writer because he mostly because Neil Gaiman understands the human condition and understands Mm -hmm. that we are drawn to each other through narrative and Mm -hmm. the way he weaves in the narrative is just so it's
0: compelling. I think what you're saying is that to be a time-traveling monster slayer you have to be a modular process person. Yep. To some extent, yes. <laughs> A modular problem I, solver.
2: I promised myself I wouldn't get too deep into the scalability <laughs> component tree modular conversations and designs that always infect every conversation that I have. It makes
0: sense. Uh, my though. poor it does, yes. sense. <laughs> it does make sense.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> modular yes, problem solver. Especially solving.
1: with especially with time That's travel, it. where you do want your outline, you do want your wireframe, you want to kind of know the general idea and then it gets into the same kind of problems we encounter mm-hmm. when you're building a time travel narrative it get, we encounter the same problems we were talking about with yeah. process you, you have this gradient of too many rules the right amount of rules no rules like it just yeah. it's um
0: there's no yeah. perfect project timeline time t- yeah it's no, time travel no, no no of course projects not. are time travel i
2: think
0: uh, <laughs> back and forth <laughs> wow well,
2: public speaking to me is time travel it's just sort of like uh someone's just like oh how did that presentation go i'm like i don't know i started and here we are and i time traveled in between i don't remember yep. what i said uh, but it's like
1: <laughs> sleeping is time travel i blacked to some out extent. i totally blacked yeah, out exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you know what sci-fi i'm really excited about fucking raised by wolves season two if yes. you haven't I seen, oh it, seen season one It's so good. Go see it. JD, you need to see it. So it's on HBO Max. Um, So let me just give you the really quick why this is important. Ridley Scott (laughs) directed the first two episodes. He has not directed TV in like 30 years. Obviously, Mm -hmm. he came from the commercial world. He was an ad man um, and then did some TV. So it's like huge. Um, I would give it one episode. One One episode if you're not into that insanity, move on. But if you're into the insanity, go for it. It is right, some right. of the most or, it's completely original. It's not an adaptation or translation of a previous existing work. Ah, it is so, its so own good, thing. So good.
0: It's fucking incredible. If you like Dune, you'll like Raised by Wolves. Probably. Yeah, like it's Dune. I it's been a while since I watched that and like all of a sudden right now I'm like I want to go rewatch it because I'm being flooded. It's so by, I like, can't wait for season it's two. It's beautiful. It's yeah. terrifying. It's like super intriguing. Like even just the concept of it, I, it, it hits all the notes for me personally. So like that, basically, that is it's, my. That's exactly what I want. Out of so Spotify, JD, show. the elevator pitch is
1: <laughs> um, colonists on a planet. The planet is a haunted house. Yep. That's so, terrifying. So there's a <laughs> little bit of horror. There's a little bit of horror, <laughs> but. It's, but it's more than that. It is strange. It, what's, what the phenomenon on the planet defy our yeah. logic. What's, like,
2: the, is it like that, um, Natalie Portman movie? Uh, was that Annihilation? Kind of. Is that what that was called? Yeah. That um, was kind of a, it's
1: a little bit. vibes, but, m- but, similar
0: vibes. Yeah.
1: Not as obvious. Yeah. It's not yeah. as like, it's here's this territory. It's just like weird shit starts happening. And unlike Lost, when weird shit starts happening, they actually explain it. Yeah. So it's like they
2: I don't want you know, to talk don't. about Lost. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, still,
1: yes. I'm yeah, so well,
0: angry. Now that now Not that, a a, now that of Lost years has come of my up. life <laughs> Yeah. Where can people find you? Where can they find all these cool things that you post and talk about in terms of uh-huh. process and many other design related topics?
2: Well, I'm required by law to post on Twitter, obviously, um, given my work there. Um, so uh, nice. it's at John, J-O-N, underscore Delman, D-E-L-M-A-N. Um, mm-hmm. I show up on Spaces, which is our our yeah, clubhouse-like no chat on there. I've been doing a bunch of those lately. Those are great. Mm-hmm. Just to we be able, to I think the, I think where we're at in the world right now, we have a yearning to just talk to each other, not talk at each other. Yeah. And what I like about spaces is it's like there's an open forum to just talk with each other. And yes. I think that's really very healthy. And I've like the last spaces that I was on was Thursday. And we talked about places we've been rejected in our careers. hmm. And I think that was just a really healthy, honest, and genuine conversation. So I've been. I want to do more of those. Um, yeah, I'm also cool. on LinkedIn, um, so mm-hmm. you can just find me on LinkedIn. I post pretty often. I usually post about the things that matter to me, which is um, design, but mostly about design systems. I post a lot about mm-hmm. accessibility. Um, mm-hmm. I have a, an underlying need to break down the barriers of what people think creative leadership is. I want people to walk away with conversations with me believing that they can be creative leaders. I really do believe that. I do not believe there's a such thing as talent or gifts or magic in that way. I think it is hard work and willingness to take chances, and to learn and grow and to be honest with yourself about what you're good and not good at and make those calculations of like, I'm not good at this. Do I know someone who's good at this and I can work with them? Or do I want to up level my skills? Um, I think that has not been communicated enough in our field. Uh The Mm -hmm. Don Draper, art director, creative director, has that persona has done damage to the creative field and Mm -hmm. specifically in advertising as well as now product, I want to squash that. I want more people of every walk of life to own these things. Um, I, I often say that technology is no longer a nice to have, it is a need to have, right? And so accessibility is no longer the nice thing that makes you feel good or you think you're supposed to do it. It is an absolute necessity, accessible design is good design. They're not in conflict. They are requirements of each other. Because everybody, myself specifically, needs to take advantage of things that look, we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. Some of us Mm -hmm. have different things that we're good at. And some of the things that we're challenged with and some things that we work around creatively. Um, And -hmm. I think as we this last 18 months have has laid that bare for a lot of yeah, us, right? Totally. The things that we thought were important do not seem as important anymore now, do they? Um, the personas and structures we had built for ourselves of like their grandiose office, which the with the ping-pong table does not seem as important anymore as <laughs> holding your family close and yep. just talking with people. So I have a I've had a new found pep in my step as to how to draw cor- correlations to each other, which is kind of how my brain works, clearly, of design systems, systemic thinking, accessibility, and conversations mm-hmm. all together. Yeah. I I see the next wave of design bringing those things together in things like conversation design, like how you deal with AI and ML, right. uh, how really? talking to Siri or talking to Google and all that. That is the next way we will communicate not only with each other but with computers.
0: I I can't think of a better note to end this episode on. That was that was perfect. I love it. <laughs> John, thank you so much for Dude. for doing this. I really appreciate it. I've you you and I have been like chatting about this whole thing since before we even I think before we even posted our first episode or something and you've been I, really encouraging about it. So it's it's so awesome to actually get you on the show. This has been great
2: i'm stoked man this has been a pleasure this has been such a pleasure
1: i feel like i could talk to you for 10 hours like there's just so much rich
0: text so thank you for uh honestly thank you man all right i guess i guess that's it for episode john thank you so much for for joining us and i guess the only thing to say is peace peace